As we go to open God's Word together, let's ask Him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, the word of your mouth is better to us than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned us, so we pray that you would give us understanding that we may learn your word. Then those who fear you shall see us and rejoice because we have hoped in your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in, the, in God's word to the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 7, you find that on page 1072 in many of our pew Bibles. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. And we've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to chapter 7, verse 9. And that will be our text for this morning, Mark chapter 7, verse 9 through verse 13. But to remind us of the context in which this passage comes, I want to begin our reading at verse 1, and then we'll read through verse 13 together. So Mark chapter 7, beginning our reading at verse 1, let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Now when the Pharisees had gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the, scribe, and the scribes asked him, why do, you, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Thus far the reading of God's word May he bless it to us. Well, we're returning to this section of Mark after uh, we've spent some time away from it. I want to thank you for your indulgence in letting me be away from the pulpit for the last two Sunday mornings. Uh, One one reason was so that I could travel to Phoenix uh, to preach at Chris Smith's ordination service. And then last week, I had the opportunity to speak at Calvin Christian High School for their spiritual emphasis week. And I spoke three times during the week, so the the council was good enough to give me that morning off. So uh, thank you for your indulgence as I've been away. Uh, But that means that it's been two weeks since we were in Mark and since we were in this discussion that Jesus had been having with the Pharisees. And as we read from the beginning of this passage, uh, they came thinking they were going to dress down Jesus about his beliefs and practices, uh, particularly concerning his attitude towards washings and towards purity. And we, sh- we talked about the last time we were in Mark, how Jesus responded to that criticism. But here Jesus really turns the tables on them. 
Uh, They thought they were going to come with their authority and dress him down about what he believed and practiced. And now he turns the tables and begins to dress them down about their beliefs and practices. Uh, To tell them that they don't know as much about the word of God as they thought they did. um, Or about how their traditions have really impacted how people have received God's word. And so we're returning to this confrontation to watch what Jesus does in turning the tables on these religious leaders. Um, to criticize their beliefs and practice, practices and really to hone in on the problem with how they operate. We've been thinking about how Jesus comes as king to bring his kingdom into the world and that one of the things he does as king is restore in righteousness what's been ruined in rebellion. And he does that here particularly for God's word. Uh, to restore in righteousness a true understanding of the word, to clear away the misunderstandings that actually interfere with the word and end up rejecting the word, making the word void in favor of other traditions. That's what Jesus has done and does in this passage. He comes to demonstrate the problem with the false piety that is taught by these religious leaders. And so that's where we want to focus, the problem of the false piety. So first we're going to see the problem exposed by our Lord. He focuses in on what is the problem with their piety. And then we see the problem illustrated in one particular practice of theirs where Jesus will use to illustrate the problem. And then finally he'll talk to them about the promise that they sacrifice. The promise that is sacrificed when we depart from the word of God in favor of the word of men. So that's how we want to think about this passage together this morning. The problem exposed, the problem illustrated, and the promise sacrificed. And that's how we'll think about this together. First, we see Jesus exposing the problem. He's already rebuked the false piety of these religious leaders, but now he's going to zero in on the true problem with how they operate. And he really summarizes that, the true problem with their ministry and teaching, there in verse 9. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Uh, Jesus' statement here is dripping with irony. You have a fine way of doing something. You are very excellent at something. Now, it's not worship. He's already quoted against them from Isaiah, your worship is vanity, It's a useless nothing. That's what Isaiah prophesied. It's not worship that you do well. Uh, What does Jesus say? You do do something really well, really beautifully. Uh, You really have a wonderful way of rejecting the word of God to establish your tradition. That's what you are really good at. Um, You can hear how that's, that's dripping with irony. That's the one thing you're really good at, is rejecting the word of God to establish your tradition. Uh, It's not something they should feel good about. Uh, But that's what Jesus says. That's what you're good at. Rejecting and replacing the word of God with your own tradition. Um, That's what they did. That was the problem of what they were all about. Um, And you remember what their tradition was. We talked about their tradition, but because it's been a little while since we have, remember that they thought of their tradition as an authoritative interpretation of the Word of God. It was not the Word of God. It was their oral tradition that they had handed down, but they thought it was a proper interpretation of the law. And one of their desires in this interpretation was to kind of build a fence around the law, 
to say, now it's a very serious matter to violate the law of God. And so to keep us from violating the law of God, we'll put a little fence around the law. And that way it'll make sure that we don't come near it to violate it. And so they thought this would actually help promote and enhance righteousness uh, by making sure that people did not come approaching that fence, approaching that law, uh, and, and ruin anything. So they were saying, you know, God's word is silent on this, but we're going to sort of fill in the blanks, interpret what God's word implies so that we keep from violating it. So the original intention of this oral tradition was to be an interpretation of God's word, but as you can imagine, that fence around God's word becomes the law itself. Right? If you start saying these are the this is the fence we're going to build around the law, then it begins to function as if it's the law. And that's what had happened. Uh, they tried to establish this oral tradition to promote God's word, but what it actually had done was replace God's word. Stood around God's word, was instead of God's word. And that's what Jesus is, is saying that they're doing. Actually, by building your fence, what you've actually done is rejected the word of God to establish your tradition. Because what you've said in your oral tradition does not match up with what God has said in his word. That's the fundamental problem. That your word is not helping, it's replacing, it's rejecting what God has said. And that problem is so important for us to see exposed here by our Lord because this is a perpetual danger. This is a perpetual danger that we face, that people will come along and say, well, I know God's word doesn't say anything about this, but let's put up a fence around it to make sure that we are interpreting it properly. And so often that fence ends up being really a rejection of what God's word says. And so that's why the calling for God's people in every generation is to test the spirits to see if they are from God, to do what the Apostle John told us to do in 1 John 4.1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Um, and some people have wrestled with that verse and said, well, you know, how are we supposed to do that? If everyone becomes the tester of the spirits, then how do we not, you know, just end up with a million opinions on the spirits and, and end up, you know, worse than we were before, um, trying to figure out who's to follow? And actually, we, we really helped if we just say, we test the spirits by following Christ. We don't have to figure things out entirely on our own. We follow the Lord. Who knows? One of, the, one of the two things that we celebrate about our Lord Jesus Christ is that he is our chief prophet and teacher. That Jesus teaches his people. So we're not left to try to figure out everything for ourselves. That Jesus teaches us by his spirit in the word. But that he's not just our teacher, our prophet and teacher. He's also our eternal king who leads us. And so he teaches us as our teacher and he leads us as our king. I think Herman Vitzius put this really well. In, in what he wrote, he said, As chief prophet and teacher, Jesus enlightens our minds by his spirit to understand the truth of his word. And as our eternal king, he bends our hearts and causes all our faculties, both of soul and body, to yield a prompt obedience. Jesus is a witness to us 
and he's a leader and commander for us. This is what the prophet Isaiah said the Lord would be for his people. God had said in Isaiah 55, 4, Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. And so how do we know that things are from the Lord? How do we not get misled? We follow Jesus. We follow where he has led us in his word and what he has taught us that God's word teaches us. He is both a witness and a commander. He is both a witness and a leader. We follow Jesus, and that's how we know that we won't go astray. Because we understand that following the traditions of men, apart from God's word, will always leave us ultimately doing exactly what Jesus warns us of in this passage. Rejecting the word of God and replacing it with the word of men. And we avoid doing that when we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when God's word is truly protected and promoted when we follow our preacher, our prophet, and our king. And that's what we need to do. That's how the problem is exposed here by our Lord. And then he takes a particular practice of the Pharisees and scribes and illustrates the problem. So the problem is exposed. Jesus says you reject God's word to establish your tradition. And then he illustrates how that problem plays out in one very practical example. And that's really what he's doing in verses 10 through 12, talking about really an illustration of how they get the word of God so badly wrong, um, particularly in the matter of Corban. And notice where Jesus begins in his critique. As he illustrates the problem, where does he start? He starts with God's word. Right? Just as he said, you guys have all these rules about purity, but let's listen to what Isaiah said. He went back to the word. Now he does the exact same thing. This is what you guys are saying, but let's go to God's word and see what he says. And he quotes from Exodus chapter 20 and Exodus 21. But also notice how the Lord introduces his quotation of scripture. How does he quote it to them? In verse 10, for Moses said, right, not just God's word says or it is written, he says Moses said. Now, why would that be a significant thing to say to these Pharisees and scribes? Because of how they thought of themselves. How did the scribes and the Pharisees think of themselves? They thought of themselves, they said, we sit on Moses' seat. We are Moses' natural successors. Um, So we are in the place of Moses. We sit in Moses' seat. Moses received the word and taught it to God's people. We now do what Moses used to do. We sit in Moses' seat. Right? Jesus said that in Matthew 23, that they sit in Moses' seat. Right? The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. They thought of themselves as Moses' legitimate successors. And as if the Lord is coming and saying, let's then see how you compare to Moses. What did Moses say? He said... Honor your father and your mother. He said, anyone who reviles father or mother is surely to be put to death. So let's see how you do, by your tradition, measuring up to what Moses said. You see the the mastery of what Jesus is doing here in his wisdom. He's taking up Moses, 
who they can have no quarrel with and just saying, let's see how you measure up to Moses. Because Moses said this, what do you say? What do you do? What do you compel people to do? And that really is the whole tenor of what he's doing here. Moses said, you said. Moses said, this is what you do. It's filled with that kind of argument, right? You no longer permit them to do anything. You invalidate the word of God by your tradition, which you hand down, and many such things you do. You see how Jesus keeps putting them against Moses? It says, what did Moses say? He said to honor your father and your mother, to honor them. In God's providence, we're considering this passage just a week after we looked at the fifth commandment on honoring your parents from the Heidelberg Catechism last Sunday night. And we looked at that from Exodus or from uh, Ephesians chapter 6, where we learned about and thought about the command to honor parents. And we saw the connection that Paul makes between honoring your parents and obeying your parents in Ephesians 6. He said to the boys and girls, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And he showed how obedience is connected with honor. That if you want to understand what honor is, the proof that you honor is that you obey. That's really the evidence of how you honor. Jesus is doing something similar here. Not saying obedience is the evidence of honor, but he says here, self-sacrificial love is the evidence of honor. And when someone wants to love their parents, what do the Pharisees and the scribes do? They stand in the way of that. And Jesus shows how they stand in the way of children who want to honor their parents by the traditions they have laid down. How they actually end up prohibiting self-sacrificial love. And they do that by this practice of Corban. Right? God's word has said, you love with a self-sacrificial love. When Paul explains that word in Philippians 2, he says, you need to have that mind that's in Christ that looks to consider others better than yourself, that looks not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the kind of love that's being commanded in God's word. That's the kind of love we see shown to us in the words and deeds of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because after Paul says, you know, this is how you love, this is what it means to have the mind of Christ, He goes on in Philippians 2 to say, and how did Christ show that love? By emptying himself of his glory, by taking on the form of a servant, by humbling himself even to the point of death on the cross. That's how he showed his love. That's how he showed he considered our interests more important than his own. Jesus didn't need to come and die on a cross for himself. Who needed him to come and die on the cross? You and me. He did that for us, not for himself. He did that because he loved us. This is the kind of love that God's law talks about. And Jesus is going to say, let's hold up that standard of love in God's word and see how your tradition stacks up. And spoiler alert, it's not well. It doesn't stack up well. 
to what God does. Because Jesus says, you actually prohibit people from loving their parents. And he introduces this idea of Corban, which is a little confusing to us. We don't understand this practice entirely. And Mark only makes the comment that it's a gift. Um, But apparently something you did when you declared something Corban was you declared it banned from using it for certain other things. So maybe you can help by thinking Corban, it's banned from other things. Um, If you say, I'm I'm banning this from the use of these people, I'm banning it from the use of this purpose, you could do that. It was your way of saying, it's banned from that purpose so I can give it entirely to God. Um, It's banned from a particular purpose so it can be devoted to another purpose. And this was apparently very common. And Jesus takes a situation that would sometimes arise and says, this demonstrates how you guys don't understand love. Now, here's the scenario. Say you're a son and you have this piece of land and you've declared it Corban. We're banning it from other uses. It's only going to be for the Lord. And maybe you do that because your parents are well provided for, you're not worried about, you don't need that land for your support or whatever. But then say your parents' finances fall apart. And suddenly your mom and dad are in a position where they need financial help. And you have this piece of land that you've set aside that you could use to help them. The only problem is you've declared it Corban, so it's now been devoted to the Lord and against that purpose. And so what do you do if you're in that situation and you want to help mom and dad, but this piece of property has been set aside? You go to the scribes and the Pharisees and you say to them, I need you to help me figure out what to do here. I've made this vow, but now I need to help my parents. So can I get out of this? And Jesus said, when someone comes to you in that situation, you tell them, no, you can't. You tell them, sorry, you promised it, you made this vow, so vows under the third commandment are binding, so you may not now keep the fifth commandment. And Jesus said, what are you doing when you do that? You are actually making God's word void. You you have the temerity to come and say, The fifth commandment is invalidated. You don't actually have to honor your father and mother. In fact, you may not honor your father and mother. That's what I think has Jesus so irate at this point. You actually have the temerity to think you can cancel the fifth commandment. And you think you can do it on the basis of trying to argue the third commandment means you don't have to love under the fifth commandment. But what are you really doing when you play that shell game with God's law? You actually make it void. And you don't permit people who want to love their parents from loving their parents. Is that what God's word teaches? Is that what God's law is for? And Jesus is irate. He categorically rejects this notion. That's not what the law is for. Why did God establish the law? for our good and for the good of our neighbors, to show us how to love well. And God says you cannot take one of the laws and argue them against the other to exclude love being shown. As one commentator said, Jesus categorically rejects the practice of using one biblical commandment to negate another. The law was not provided for its own sake but to benefit men. 
It is an expression of God's covenant faithfulness as well as of his righteousness. And in no circumstance was obedience to one commandment to nullify another. Jesus is Israel's true teacher who as a compassionate shepherd both upholds the law and yet transcends Moses' mediatorial role. Jesus is the one around whom reconstituted Israel must gather. For Christ, holiness and purity under the law is centered on doing good to others and bringing life, even if this means a cross-bearing laying down of one's own life. The law is there to love. That's what the law is commanding. And Jesus is saying, you know, you you have all this knowledge, you have all this understanding of the law, but you can't understand its simple purpose. If your parents need help, and someone comes to you and says, we want to help our parents, and you say no, Jesus is saying, you don't understand the law at all. Because the law of love says, if your parents need help, and you're in a position to help them, in love you help them. It should be first day stuff when it comes to the law. How can you teachers and experts not understand this? I think that's what has Jesus so irate. To say you hold up this vow that God's word nowhere commands and act as if that can nullify a commandment of God. And he said, you know, what's really tragic about all of this is what did Moses say about the person who violates this commandment? They deserve death. You know, I think that's why Jesus highlights this tradition. He makes a really important statement at the end of verse 13. It'd be be easy to overlook that or to read past it as just an incidental note that Mark includes, but I think it's a very important statement that Jesus makes. You make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Right? It, it, we could almost dismiss that last part. Many such things you do, as if that's not important to the rest of this passage. But what, what does that tell us about Jesus' argument here? It tells us that Jesus could have chosen any one of a number of their practices to illustrate the problem with their piety, but he chose this one. He chose this one. And why would he focus in on this one? Why focus in on this practice if, they're doing, if they do this all the time in all sorts of other ways? And I think it's for this reason. Jesus focuses on this practice because it touches on the fifth commandment. Because what is unique about the fifth commandment? Again, if you were in church last night, you might, or last Sunday night, you might already know. But what was unique about this fifth commandment? Paul says in Ephesians 6, 2, this is the only commandment with a promise. Or this is the first commandment with a promise. And what is the promise? That it will go well with you and you will live long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. It's a commandment with a promise. But what Jesus is highlighting is, if you, if you violate the law of God, what do you actually do? The promise is sacrificed. This is a commandment that carries a promise, the promise of life, 
that it goes well with you and you live long. That's the picture of blessedness before your God. And what is the penalty for violating this law? You will surely die. And what is Jesus doing by honing in on this example? This is something the religious authorities should have understood. When Jesus says, you will surely die, and quotes that to them, he's saying, you know, your tradition actually sacrifices the promise God's made. You think your tradition is helping everybody be so holy. And that was really what drove the Pharisees and the scribes. They thought, you know, if we can really get the people of Israel to be holy again, then God will visit us with all the covenant blessings that were promised in the Old Testament. If we could just ramp up our holiness to the right degree, then God will be forced almost to come and bless us. And that's what motivated the zeal of the Pharisees and the zeal of the scribes to say, we really need to pump up God's law because if we pump up his law and pump up our holiness, we can have blessedness come in. And what is Jesus doing here? He's saying, you know what? All of this tradition is not increasing holiness. It's actually leading to unholiness. It's not actually causing God's people to keep the law. It's actually causing God's people to break the law. And what happens when you break the law? You sacrifice the promise. It doesn't go well with you. And you don't live long in the land if you violate God's law. What comes with violating God's law? It's the consequence is death. And that's what really I think is Jesus is coming to at the end of this passage, saying to them, you know, you think all that you're doing is promoting life. It's actually sacrificing the promise and leading to death. And that reminds us of something of the glory that Jesus has come to do is to say as king over his people, I am not going to allow them to cast themselves into death. I am not going to allow them to sacrifice the promise that's been given to them. And that's what Jesus comes into the world to do, to secure the life and blessedness of his people. They are not going to do it by their own righteousness. In fact, their best ideas about righteousness are only driving them further to alienation from God. And that's something of the glory of what Jesus comes to do, is comes into the world and says, sinners will only ever sacrifice the promise. They will only ever lead to doing, do the things that will lead ultimately to curse and death. And the king of glory comes in the world and says, I am not going to permit this to happen to my people. I'm going to rescue them from the peril into which they are casting themselves. And because they cannot secure the promise for themselves, I will secure the promise for them. That's what the king of glory came into the world to do. To clear away these traditions that were clouding the law of God and to reveal it in its full glory and to reveal himself as the one who keeps the law perfectly on behalf of his people. And why does he come to keep that law? It's to secure the promise of life that if left to ourselves, we would only ever sacrifice. That promise that we would only ever miss. And to bring in the fullness of what that promise was speaking of. That you would live long in the land that your Lord your God is giving you and that it would go well with you. 
What was that meant to point them forward to? It was supposed to be a picture of heavenly life with God. Where it goes well with us forever. And we live long, not just in a geographic area the Lord is giving us, but live long in the heavenly places. In that holy heaven, that, that heavenly holy land of which we are citizens. And how did Jesus secure entry into that land for us? By coming into the world and living a perfect life. By fully keeping the law of God. By securing the promise by his perfect righteousness. And then dying for all the people who had given it up. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ represents to us. Here is the perfect one who perfectly kept the law of God and secured a life that is well and should live long in the land that the Lord is giving him. And he sacrificed himself for the sake of those who had given up the promise so that they would see life. And he rose again from the dead to assure us that the promised penalty, the promise has been provided, the penalty has been paid, And now those who believe in Christ know that it will go well with them before the Lord, now and forever. And that they will live long with him in eternal blessedness by the way that he's opened. By the way Jesus dealt with the law here, these people who sat on Moses' seat should have recognized who had come. That one greater than Moses was now here. They sat in the seat of Moses, who was a faithful servant in God's house. But here now, as as Hebrews tells us, is the son who is over the house. God's son has now come. He's not just a faithful servant. He's the son. He's the savior. And he's come to rescue us out of our own hands. Where we would be so prone to create our own word that would only serve to reject and replace God's word with something worse. And what has Jesus come to do? To protect and promote God's word, to lead us into righteousness, to rescue us from ourselves, and to restore the word of God, to be a light for our feet, a lamp for our paths that would lead us to Jesus and his righteousness and his salvation. Thanks be to God for sending us a savior who would not allow the promise to be sacrificed, but has secured for us the promise of life forevermore, and that abundantly. Praise the Lord. Amen.